for singing of the redemption that we have been given by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible that you have brought with you this morning, would you lift your Bible up? This Bible that you hold in your hands today is a marvelous, marvelous book. It was written in a different time and culture. And yet it is the timeless and cross-cultural revelation of God. Our task as students of the Bible is to interpret it in light of its geography, its history, its cultures, its languages, so that we can understand what the meaning was in the original context. I saw an example recently of the importance of this. In fact, it was in the St. Paul newspaper a few weeks ago, months ago now, when the legislature was in session. There was a gentleman from Roseville, as a matter of fact, who was very concerned about a bill that was before the legislature uh, dealing with the rights of replacement workers during a strike. Do you remember that bill? Uh, it got some notoriety in the newspaper, but this particular individual was quite concerned about it, and so he printed the whole bill and underlined throughout the bill those parts of it that he was concerned about. And then at the very end, in bold letters, the advertisement in the newspaper said, this is what the Bible says. And so then he quoted three verses from the Bible, one from Colossians 4, about masters, uh, give to your servants that which is just and equal. And then he quoted a verse from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Uh, in Timothy it says this, Not given to wine, no striker. Not greedy of filthy lucre, and so on. And he underlined, no striker, and did the same thing with the verse in Titus chapter 1, no striker. Well, now, someone who read that advertisement might think the Bible had a lot to say about collective bargaining and that employees are never to strike. As a matter of fact, the first century culture knew very little about collective bargaining and about unions. And uh, the word striker, while it was very good for the English of King James Day, doesn't mean a whole lot today, at least in in translating that particular word from the Greek New Testament, it means someone who's not pugnacious, not someone who's prone to be a fighter, as it lists there the qualifications of an elder. We have to be careful in interpreting the Bible, that we do so in light of its culture and its languages. The Bible describes God's salvation in terms that are familiar to first century Jews and Romans. So when you and I come to a term that describes salvation, we need to be sure we understand what it meant to those people. Such is the term redemption. When we think of redemption these days, we think of green stamps or some sort of thing. But redemption in those days had an entirely different meaning. One of God's good gifts to us is the gift of redemption. And if you and I will understand what it means, it will change the way that we look at our lives. 
The meaning of redemption is built upon the common practice of slavery in the ancient world. Well, someone says, what has slavery got to do with me? Well, you stick with me and I think you may find out. We'll soon see. We need some background on slavery as it was practiced in the ancient world to help set our minds in the direction of redemption. Slavery was practiced by people as far back as the time of Abraham, as far as the Bible records for us. Abraham had a slave. His name is recorded for us, in fact, in Genesis, the name Eliezer. Hagar was a slave to Abram's wife, Sarah. They had slaves in those days. However, we need to keep in mind that slaves in that particular period were more like members of the family than like the image of the slave that you and I often think of. We also observe slavery in the more traditional sense as we think of it in the bondage of the people of Israel in Egypt. They were in a cruel slavery and were required to perform the tasks of the Egyptians and there was no compassion for them. When the Israelites were delivered and established their nation, they were forbidden by God's law to make slaves of their own brethren. But a Jewish person could sell his labor to make restitution for what he had done or to pay back a debt that he owed. But one who did sell his labor had to be released from that bondage on the year of Jubilee, which was every 50 years in their calendar, or every seven years during the Sabbath year. And so it was not a perpetual bondage. The Israelites also had foreign slaves from other people, from the Canaanites, for example, from whom they took the land. It was a practice that began in the day of Joshua and continued on. But these people, too, though they were foreign, uh, Gentile slaves, were protected by the laws of Israel and were generally well treated. In the New Testament day, the Romans had many slaves. In fact, some people believe that there were more slaves in the city of Rome by far than there were free people. Most of the slaves in the Roman period were fairly well treated and in some respects were even better off in their living conditions than free men. But you can see that slavery was a part of the whole world mindset in those days. Redemption had to do with that practice of slavery. Redemption was the act on the part of a suitable and willing person to purchase a slave and to release that slave from his bondage. It involved paying the price necessary to procure freedom for the slave. That was redemption. Now the concept of spiritual redemption is based upon these ideas. The heart of the issue is not the relative freedom or the 
manner of treatment that the slave had. The heart of the issue is ownership. You see, a slave, whether well-treated or cruelly treated, did not belong to himself. He belonged to his master. And because of that, he had absolutely no rights. He may be well-treated and extended kindnesses by his master, or may be cruelly treated. But whichever, the important thing is the issue of ownership. He did not belong to himself. It is very hard for you and me to understand what that would be like. This is totally foreign to anything that we're familiar with today, not to belong to ourselves. The Bible says that you and I, spiritually, are slaves by our birth into the race of Adam. Open your Bible, please, to Romans chapter 6. The Apostle is here writing to people who have already been liberated, but he points back to their former slavery in the way that he talks. Look in Romans chapter 6, and verse 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin. Verse 19. In the middle of the verse he says, For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. And then again in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin... So make no mistake about it. <clears throat> Spiritually speaking, no person belongs to himself. We may enjoy political freedom. We may point to a declaration of independence and to a constitution, to a bill of rights. And we say we are a free people. And that may be true politically, but it is not true spiritually. For we, by our birth into the race of Adam, are slaves of sin. And we do not belong to ourselves, we belong to sin. And sin is a cruel taskmaster. Sin enforces obedience upon the corrupted will of the human race. And it results in impurity in the life and lawlessness. Slaves of sin. Peter says in 2 Peter 2.19 that this slavery is to corruption. It is not a slavery that leads to something better, a higher standard. It is a slavery that leads downward, away from God, and to corruption. And Paul says at the end of this very chapter in Romans chapter 6 that it leads to eternal death. The wages of sin, this slave taskmaster, the wages that we are paid is death. Separation from God for all of eternity.
Now, in the New Testament, redemption is the purchase price for slaves resulting in their release from their former ownership into a new relationship. Dr. R.D. Knutson, writing in Encyclopedia of the Bible, says, The heart of the biblical message of redemption is the deliverance of the people of God from the bondage of sin by the perfect substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ and their consequent restoration to God and his heavenly kingdom. A redeemer is one who possesses the right or who exercises the right of redemption. The Bible presents Christ as the redeemer of God's elect. The purchase price for our deliverance from slavery to sin was the death of Jesus Christ. The offering of himself as a bloody sacrifice to purchase us out of the slave relationship to sin. To purchase us out of that, that we might be again related to God. The emphasis upon this purchase price in redemption, which Peter says is like the blood of a lamb, pointing back to the Passover lamb of God. The purchase price, the emphasis of that is not upon to whom the price was paid. That has been an argument in theology for centuries. And some say that the price was paid to the devil. That was a teaching in the early church, which was refuted. It is still a teaching today among the Seventh-day Adventists. The emphasis of the Bible, though, is not upon to whom the price was paid, but upon the sufficiency of the price itself. The price that was paid for us is entirely sufficient to release us from all obligation to our former owner and to give us a complete relationship to our new master, God himself. Now the difficulty that you and I have in this whole matter of redemption is not in intellectually grasping it. Most of us understand that redemption is being purchased and then released The difficulty that we have is in emotionally feeling it because we have such a hard time identifying with the idea that we don't own ourselves. And if we don't feel it, if it doesn't touch our emotions that we have been released from slavery by the price of Christ's blood and related to God as our new master, if we do not feel that, It will not move our wills to live differently. The difficulty we have is not in understanding what redemption means. It is in feeling in our souls that we have been redeemed. Part of that is because we not only... 
fail to realize the magnificence of the redemption, but we also fail to fully grasp the desperate hopelessness of our position before we were redeemed. Such is the case of a woman that Henry Morehouse told about. Henry Morehouse was a British evangelist who died in 1880 at just 40 years of age. First half of his life was spent in wickedness and sin. But becoming a Christian at age 21, he determined by God's grace that he would serve God with all of his heart. He became a preacher. He was well known for passing out tracts on the streets, for being a street preacher and an evangelist, a great personal witness. Henry Morehouse told the story of a woman who came to him and said, I can't see how a person who has broken just one of the commandments can be as bad as another who has broken five or even all of them. You see, she had a hard time understanding the desperate condition that she was in. She felt herself to be a fairly righteous individual. Broken maybe one or two commandments, but that surely isn't as bad as breaking five or all of them. Morehouse says, I advised her that God had actually given only one law, which consists of ten different parts. Look at this watch of mine. If you counted all its cogs, you would find many. If you ruined only one, you might leave the other parts in perfect condition, and yet this would be a broken watch and no longer run. He says, the woman still couldn't see the point. So I said, suppose you were hanging over a precipice suspended by a chain with ten links. If a man took a hammer and smashed every link, where would you go? Well, to the bottom of the canyon, of course, she said. Well, if he severed only one link, what would happen? Why, that would be just as bad. I would still fall and be killed. And he says, suddenly she grasped the truth that whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Do we understand the hopelessness of our situation before Christ redeemed us? Do we understand the desperate situation, the eternal hell that was surely ours when we were slaves to sin? Let me build a picture this way for you. Let's suppose that you were fired from your job without cause. You say, well, that does sound familiar. Well, for some people it does. But let's suppose that beyond that you couldn't secure another job. And because of that, you fell behind in your house payments. And you faced immediate foreclosure. To complicate things, you had borrowed on your credit cards up to the maximum. And you were receiving daily telephone calls from collection agencies demanding payment for the utilities, the credit cards, and all of the other loans that you had accumulated. And you had no job, and you could not find one. And to top it off, you had educational loans. 
some of you know about. And then the final straw. Somebody sues you because of maybe falling in the driveway or something like that. And they win the judgment. And there is a judgment of five million dollars put on your head. Five million bucks that you have to come up with. Because your insurance doesn't cover that sort of thing. Now it's hard to put yourself in that situation, to try to imagine it, but just do it for a second. Just think of the load, think of the position that you would be in. You would feel like never getting a job again. You would probably desire to go on welfare in Hennepin County. You would want to do something where you wouldn't have to pay off all of those debts. There's no way that you can pay off $5 million in a lifetime if you had your job back. What are you going to do? And then, and then let's just suppose that someone that you had never met before came to you one day and that person handed you a check for five million dollars so that you could pay the judgment against you. And then that person said, give me all of the bills for the credit cards and the utilities and all of those things and hand me the, the mortgage book for your house with all of those payments in there still. And I'm going to pay all of them. And by the way, I'm offering you a job in my company starting tomorrow and beyond that Beyond that, I'm going to give you the privilege of writing all of your future checks on my personal account. And there's no limit to what you can write. It's just all yours. That'd be pretty neat, wouldn't it? Now, if the first was hard to imagine, the second's even harder, right? But that's something. I mean, that is just the poorest picture of what Jesus did for us. We do not feel our redemption because we don't understand what slavery is. Oh, if you today your heart can begin to feel that you are no longer owned by sin, then this message today will have accomplished something. I don't expect you to learn afresh what redemption is all about. You probably already know that. But oh, if you can begin to feel it in your soul, what God's done for you. If you can begin to grasp emotionally that you have been purchased with a price of the blood of Christ so that you could be freed from sin's mastery and then released from that old slave relationship 
that now you've been rightly related to God in a brand new relationship that gives you everything that you need in this world and for eternity. If you can just begin to feel that, God's done a work in your heart. Because it is when we feel that that we will begin to make the kinds of decisions in light of it that will make a difference in our lives. Because you see, the way that we live our lives in our culture is that we have our rights. I'm my own man. I can do what I want to do. We believe that we own ourselves. We've already seen that, in fact, for the unsaved, sin is the owner. And we who are saved feel, fail to realize that we have a new master who now owns us. That master is Jesus Christ. The implications of redemption are many. I just want to focus on one this morning, and it's this. Because we are a redeemed people, we do not belong to ourselves, but to God who purchased us. Open your Bible again to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is here dealing with the Unfortunate and sinful practice of immorality, religious ritual immorality, which was a part of the worship of the pagan people in Corinth. And some of the Christians kind of hung on to these old patterns. And so he says to them in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18 flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is against the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Leon Morris, writing in his book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, says, The redeemed are paradoxically slaves, the slaves of God, for they were bought with a price. Believers are not bought by Christ, in, brought by Christ into a liberty of selfish ease. Rather, since they have been bought by God at terrible cost, they have become God's slaves to do His will. Is that the way that you look at the Christian life? It is that we have become God's slaves to do His will. Service for Him is not just a duty, but it is a delight. A delight, but it is a duty. It is an obligation on our part because He owns us. His ownership means that He owns all of the rights to our lives. Ah, oh, somebody says, I have a right 
to choose my own friends. I have a right to earn money and to spend it. I have a right to control what belongs to me. I have the right to expect fairness in the way that I'm treated. I have a right to my own opinions, says someone else. I have a right to choose what I want to do and where I want to go. I have a right to be healthy and happy and prosperous and to achieve the American dream. In fact, none of those are rights that we have. For a slave does not have any rights of his own. You say, wait a minute, I can choose my own friends. No. Only as they are friends who please the Lord. Up as somebody says, I have the right to earn money and to spend it. Only as the Lord allows you in freedom of conscience to spend it. But I have a right to control what belongs to me. Only if you see yourself as a steward and understand that God has given you all of those things in your hands. But I have a right to expect fairness in the way that I'm treated by other people. Did your master have that right and exercise it? Was he treated fairly by other people? Or did he learn to suffer unjustly? But I have the right to my own opinions. Only as those opinions are molded by the Spirit of God who indwells your body. But I have a right to choose what I want to do and where I want to go. If it's the Lord's will. But I have a right to the American dream. If God chooses to give that to you, you also have the right to be poor and to never see the dream. You know, a lot of the frustrations, the conflicts, the tensions, the worry that you and I have in our lives is created because we hang on to the rights that we think we have. And we argue with others about them, and we argue with God about them. And we say, yes, but I have my rights. The fact is that we are not our own, and we have been purchased with a price. He purchased all of our rights. And the greatest position that you and I can come to in life, the happiest way that you and I can live, is to open our hands and to say, Lord, I don't cling any longer to what isn't mine anyway. And I give you the rights, and I yield to you for whatever you choose to bring to me. For I am your servant, and I am not my own. For I've been bought with a price.
The ramifications of redemption go far beyond this. But if I am not my own, but Christ's, it means that I must be responsible about the way that I treat my body. That's Paul's meaning here in 1 Corinthians 6. I must be responsible about my attitude concerning material possessions. I must be responsible about the decisions about my future because I'm not my own. If I'm not my own but Christ's, then I should know that I will one day give an account to him who is my master. If I am not my own but Christ's, it means that I can learn to live free from fear and anxiety because he will always take good care of his property. I met an interesting man this last week. I would judge, though I didn't ask him, that he would be a man in his mid-60s. He told me that when he had been a driver of an 18-wheeler for 30 years, he was forced into retirement at 55 years of age. He'd been a Christian all of his life. Forced into retirement, he accepted that as God's will. He said, Lord, if you will let me live, I am going to serve you with the rest of my life in some way. And so to get prepared to do that, in his case, he desired, decided to go to seminary. And he did for two or three years, went to seminary. And for the last number of years now, he has been a volunteer chaplain in one of the largest hospitals in Los Angeles. And several days out of the week, he goes down to the hospital as a volunteer. He's not paid to do this. And he just goes visiting people who are in need in the hospital. And he said, you know, I've had the opportunity to lead many people to Christ. And he said, I want you to know that today there are two people in glory who were AIDS patients in that hospital. And it was my privilege to lead them to faith in Jesus. Now there's a man who has learned what it is to say, Lord, here are my rights. And at 55, though my job is taken away from me, you direct me. I'm your slave. I'm not my own. You bought me. Direct my life. Lord, use me as you will. And that man is so filled with joy and excitement and enthusiasm about living, a delight to be around. That's how I want to grow old. I hope that's how you want to grow old as well. Recognizing that we are a redeemed people and we're not our own. Let's pray. Sing with me again the chorus that we sang earlier. Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior, 
Glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us, blessed Redeemer, living Word. Blessed Redeemer. We have a hard time, Lord, feeling that we are redeemed because we don't understand the first century context of that word. But oh, may our hearts warm to it, begin to probe within us and cause us to feel afresh that we are not our own that we've been purchased and move our wills so that we will let go of what isn't really ours anyway so that we will yield our rights to you and learn to live at peace and in joy knowing that you will take good care of what's yours. Release us from the anxiety and the frustration, the conflicts and the stress that come because of our worrying about rights. And teach us to live in the freedom of your servants. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.